We've assembled today, brethren, to observe a part of God's days of unleavened bread. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and starting in verse 7, we find the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, after the death, crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, and actually uh, several decades into the beginning of the New Testament Church of God, God's people were observing this holy day. We find in verse 7, Paul wrote, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. And it's interesting because when we observe these days, we actually deleaven our homes before they start. I know in our family, sometimes that process starts uh, days, sometimes even weeks really earlier when you think about it, because we stop buying anything with leavening. We begin to isolate it, and actually at the very end, just before the days of leavened bread, then we remove it. And sometimes by that time, it might be a very small amount of leavened bread or any kind of pastry. So he said they are truly unleavened. So they've done the physical part, but he goes on to say, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. The removing eleven from our life is not just the physical, and the New Testament makes that very clear to us, that it is Christ's sacrifice, his blood, the forgiveness given to us by that sacrifice that literally is the unleavening that is so important in our life. And so he tells us, verse 8, Therefore let us keep the feast. So we observe God's holy days, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so we keep God's days, But at the same time, the Bible is telling us in this process, in verse 7, it says, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. And that particular passage and the thought of that is the core of what I wish to address today, because keeping God's holy days, and particularly the days of unleavened bread, reveal to us something that is not understood in our world. Many people read the Bible, and many people acknowledge and see the sacrifice of Christ. They understand perhaps even that he is the Passover. He is the Lamb of God. But brethren, what they do not understand is that it's a beginning. There are many people who believe once they have accepted Christ's sacrifice, their sins have been forgiven, they're saved. It's over. Now they await the time of God's intervention, his reward, their change. But by keeping the days of unleavened bread, we understand that it is a beginning. It's not an end. It's God's intervention in our life. It's the beginning of a relationship. Let's notice in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 12, 
And in verse 13, it describes the Passover. Exodus chapter 12, verse, I believe I, yes, verse 13. It speaks of the actual moment or time that night when God passed over them. Verse 13, it says, Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so God passes over us. Verse 14, so this day shall be to you a memorial. It's not something that is something we renew or a relationship that somehow we, you know, start again. It's actually a, a remembrance, a memorial of that relationship that certainly reminds us, brethren, at times to draw closer to God, to evaluate and consider our spiritual life. But what we're doing is extending a relationship that we entered into at a previous time. And, of course, we keep God's holy days every year. And every year I have learned in my life that it seems step by step, sometimes not big steps, sometimes half steps or small steps, once in a while, you'll take a step that sort of is a, a move forward in your understanding. But I've learned that every year I see things and understand certain things, sometimes just in a new light with a little more understanding or greater depth. But that comes because we keep them every year, and that's why they're annual. God wants us to be reminded. He wants us to move forward and to grow. So they're to be a memorial, and you shall keep them as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by everlasting ordinance. What's interesting then is, as we continue the very next verse, directly coupled to the Passover without a break, is the beginning of the days of unleavened bread. And so God brings two things together. If we were to express it in our language, we would say A and B. Not A apart from, not A separate from, but A and B. And so we read verse 15, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And the instruction then continues. I'd like to move forward to chapter 13. In verses 7 through 10, because it speaks more directly here of what is happening in that observance. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days. So for a seven-day period, we observe the days of unleavened bread. And I know in life as we go back to, because part of those that period of time, although it's the days of unleavened bread, they're not Sabbaths. They're days where we return to our daily life, and we live the things of daily life. And again, I don't know if you've thought about this, but that's exactly a part of the lesson, that what we're learning is not something that is not disassociated from, but very much a part of our daily life. 
the things that we would consider norm, except for we watch what we eat, especially in relationship to the bread or any kind of pastry that we eat. It says, unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day, saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me. So really, we're learning a lesson of what God started, what he did. And, of course, that goes back then with and connects with the Passover when I came up from Egypt. It again says, it shall be a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth, for with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. So God gives us instruction that connects together, as they run together, the Passover and the Days of Leavened Bread. Now, what happened during the Days of Leavened Bread becomes very important. As we look back in God's Word, we realize, and I'm not going to go into some of the detail, but we know that they stayed in their homes as God instructed. They obeyed Him in the Passover, and He passed over them. It was not till the morning that anyone left their home. But when they left their home, they quickly learned that they were free, that they were not only were free, they were told to depart the land, to get out. And that God had given them instruction. In fact, they had prepared in part for departure because, as the Scripture tells us, they kept the Passover with their sandals and their staff in hand. The understanding was they were not going to remain. And so the departure began. We then lead into, as the Bible leads us, to a night much remembered, a night much observed, a time in certain ways of joy, but also a solemn period because this happened with so much death. And it happened by God's intervention with a very strong hand. The king of Egypt and the Egyptian people had ignored the intervention of God at previous times. They refused. And God had a part in that. He had a part because he wanted to teach a lesson, not only to them, but particularly to his people. So we read in Exodus chapter 14 that their travel brought them to a position where they literally were trapped. They were between the armies of Pharaoh, who at this time, having lost his son and the so many great losses throughout his nation and the sorrow that encompassed it had turned now to anger, to a desire for vengeance and a desire to revenge themselves. And so they pursued the children of Israel. And we read in verse 10 of chapter 14, And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, they didn't cry out in faith. They really cried out in complaint when you read it. But, you know, God used this. He told them, as we read on in verse 13, 
Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. There's a time in God's plan in our spiritual life when this world that Egypt symbolized will no longer be a part of our life, will no longer be a part in any way of the creation of God. And so I think it's important to realize that there's a symbolism here that actually extends even to the future, our future, the future for mankind. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? So he, Moses understood they had to trust in God. But God told him, tell the children of Israel to go forward. And he gave him instruction to lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it. Now, if you read on, you'll find here that in verse 19, the angel of God, who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. It was God intervened. The first intervention actually was to separate them. It's interesting how the separation is described. Thus, it was a cloud and darkness to the one. And so suddenly the presence of God was a cloud and darkness to the Egyptians. And it gave light by night to the other. So in spite of natural darkness, it provided light to the children of Israel. And we know in the New Testament, light and darkness relate very much to God opening our understanding, giving us light, and light that we are to walk in, and light that gives us understanding, so that the one did not come near the other all that night. So not only did it, in a sense, it served a very clear physical function, it also, at the same time, brethren, as you go forward in God's word, gives us a, a picture of something God was doing. The other thing I'd like to point out is the water separated. The Bible described, because I'm going to refer to this later, that as they left, the waters stretched back, and they actually became like a wall. We find here as we read, verse 27, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, oh, this, excuse me, I had moved ahead of myself. Let's see, they, uh, in verse 21, it says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them. You know, sometimes when waters go back, they simply recede. 
But the Bible describes them as like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And so if you happen to have seen the Ten Commandments, you see that that's how it's portrayed. And scripturally, that's accurate. But it literally gave them, and how wide they were, the Bible doesn't say, but obviously sufficient, and they describes a wall. And a wall is something in this manner, when you walk between it, it's, it doesn't seem to describe it as something that was a great separation, but rather a very clear path, something they could proceed to, but also right there. Not that far, not that distant, that they do not understand that God had miraculously divided the sea. Now, I mention this because as we go forward, I'd like to mention this also in an analogy to what God is doing. So his instruction was, go forward. In this case, we also know God again intervened to save them. Notice here, as we look in verse 30, it says, So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So when you look at the days of living bread, very much a part of the events of this day, not only was the departure, the night to be much observed, but it was also the deliverance and the separation that God provided from the children of Egypt. So God provided for them a path, a, a place and a way to walk. You read in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 5, the statement made that I think is very relevant to what God has done, and brethren, what he is doing. And it's a statement that gives us understanding to the relationship between forgiveness and obedience, or forgiveness and the need to continue in keeping God's law and obeying and following a path. That's what's missing to people. Many people read the Bible In fact, some uh, will argue that, no, that is not what's necessary. That's not what the Scripture says. And, of course, in that, they believe that they have been saved, but we know that, literally, they're behind the wall of darkness, that they remain spiritually blind. So in Romans chapter 5, in verse 21, it gives us a picture, and I'd like to use that picture and explain it in greater detail to help us to understand my point and my message today. It says, in relationship to sin, and it's talking about God's law and his grace, and how God's law helped identify sin, to know what it was. It says in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness. Now, what does it reign for? 
It reigns to eternal life, which is through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so when we look at the Scripture, and we look at the days we observe, we have a symbolism of forgiveness and deliverance. We have instruction then during that time, which are the days of unleavened bread, to go forward. Now, we do not go forward haphazardly. We go forward in a path we find described in the Scripture. And that path is actually defined first by the laws of God. Jesus was asked, you know, what must I do to have eternal life? This was in Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16, it tells us of a young man, quite an unusual person when you read the entirety of it. I'm going to summarize a part and particularly emphasize something that most people in this world do not see and do not emphasize. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16, says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? He's asking Jesus Christ, our Savior. He's asking the Messiah, the Son of God. He's asking the Lamb of God. And so he, that is Jesus, said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. But if you want to enter into life. So he really challenged him in terms of his approach because it was an approach that, in a sense, had to do with self-evaluation rather than looking to God and seeing, in a sense, his stature It was looking to man, looking to ourself. And at this time, Christ had taken on him, literally, the flesh. Not that it was evil, and neither had he sinned, but he really just pointed something out, and that is where should we look when we consider goodness. It says, but if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Here's here's our Savior asked, what must I do? And his answer, very simply, was keep the commandments. He asked him which, and Christ told him. And when he listed the commandments that have to do with our relationship to our fellow man, to love our neighbor, as they're summarized by Christ at another time, then this young man said, which is really remarkable when you think about it, He said, I've done all these things. I don't know how many people could actually say that, especially in our present world. But he said he had. And Christ did not disagree with him. But it's interesting, this young man, after saying that, verse 20, he said, what do I still lack? He understood that loving your neighbor and, and following those commandments were not enough. And, of course, there are many people who quote this passage. They stop when Christ told him what commandments to keep, and they then call those the New Testament commandments. Those are the only commandments that were to 
by the word of Christ, continue to need to observe. Well, there's certainly no question, brethren, we need to observe them. And it's important. Christ described them as the second great commandment, to love your neighbor. But the approach is that these are not and do not include the commandments that have our relationship to God. But notice what transpired. He said, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, that is, if you want to go forward, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. It was a unique instruction. We know why Christ gave him this instruction, and we understand it when we read verse 22. It says, When the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You know, the situation here is one that is very clearly described in God's commandments and the giving of them. It's in Exodus chapter 20, and verses 1 and 2. And when we read the commandments, please note how they start. I, I grew up in, in a, a faith where the commandments were taught. But they did not start with the saying and the words of God. They started where men had, in a sense, defined them. I know we also often put them on our walls and so on, and God wants us to. But the first instruction given was actually to identify something, was to identify what God had done. Verse 1, it says, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That was the first statement given was actually what God had done in our life that he called us. The Bible's very plain in the New Testament. We cannot come to God unless it was by his action, the action of our Father in heaven. That he called us and says no man can come to him without a calling. And what we do, brethren, is actually when God calls us, we respond. But God does so seeing us. He does so with the ability to see the heart, to see our potential, to see our thoughts. He knows our very being. With that instruction, identifying he brings us out, he then states the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That was the problem for this young man, is that he had a God. If something was first in his life, it was his wealth, and that's why he was sorrowful. He wasn't willing to give it up. So when we read Matthew 19 and we read God's instruction here, I particularly want to point out that his instruction includes love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, it includes the commandments, the first commandments that tell us how to love God. And to say that it excludes those commandments is not to read and continue to read the words of Christ. 
But understanding that, and understanding that these are the commandments we are to observe, and we are to go forward. In other words, they become, in a sense, as we proceed forward, brethren, like walls or fences. Most of us probably came to services on a highway. And a highway generally has lines painted. Sometimes it will even have barriers. You know, you're on a highway most of the time, unless it's to separate in freeway situations, traffic. But most of the time, uh, you'll have a bank or you'll have lines uh, beside you. Uh, usually a yellow a line if you're proceeding in America to your right. In some other parts of the world, it might be to your left. And then you have a center line. And you understand that is your path. And if you need to pass, you understand that you do not have the right of way. You have to yield to others and do so in safety. If you're on a bridge, most bridges have some type of walls. Because if you go off the bridge, it could be very, very serious. In many cases, would mean life and death. And so... We structure walls to protect us, to guide us. We place lines so we know where to go and how to travel. God's done that. He wants us to go forward. But he wants us to go forward, brethren, with obedience. He wants us to go forward within the walls of his instruction. And his instruction does not just include, when you start to read the Bible, Ten Commandments, they're foundational. His instruction then gives us statutes and ordinances. And as we begin to understand and we begin to obey God, brethren, we understand the statutes and ordinances we keep are his holy days, clean and unclean, tithing. In other words, God gives us a path of life. It's like a framework in which we live. And when we live within that, we're within or on the path that God has given. I think it's important to understand that in that path, it's with obedience. You know, when we seek forgiveness and are repentant, we turn around. But when you turn around and you stay there, do you proceed or go anywhere? Now, you've turned around, but you need to go forward or on the path that you've been given. And I'd like to show from the Scripture, how do we proceed forward? Because we have that. We've been given that. That's why we're observing, and that's why you're hearing my voice. It's the days of eleven bread, and you're observing them. I'm observing them as they come. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 8, I'd like to in a sense, begin to define what should have our attention. If you're part of and observing God, you're obeying Him. You're seeking in that within and trying to live within that framework. If you're still struggling with that, my experience has been you'll either move inside that framework or, in reality, you'll move out of it. It will not have its importance to you. And whether God's open your understanding None of us are the judge. Jesus Christ is. God is who sees the heart. But if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8, it explains here and says something. 
that I'd like to address that has to do with how we go forward and what is involved in our part in the days of eleven bread. Verse 8, it says, Let us keep the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It seems like a huge step, especially when you're first in the church, that here you're learning about God's Sabbath, you're learning about the Holy Days, maybe for the very first time. And all at once you jump to the issues of sincerity and truth. Well, they're very, very important. They become important actually in what we would call very basic training. In our world today, our understanding physically of our human body and athletic pursuits, the money involved, we have spent a great deal of time trying to understand how do we perform our best. And so whether you play a sport, baseball, basketball, football, tennis, I guess even perhaps badminton, I have to believe it would apply, golf, anything of that nature, where you're trying to athletically perform at your peak level, the very highest level of your ability and your training. The same thing is true in things like climbing or running. What we've learned is that what is most important in your conditioning starts with what we call the core. In other words, the large muscles of your body. Those muscles, your back, your hips, the core, the abdomen, and the muscles of our stomach, they support our entire body. And so in training today, we certainly train specifically if you have, like if you're running, you train your legs. But we've learned to actually maximize your ability. You have to strengthen the core. It's interesting in God's word. I'd like to show you something in the scripture. Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, he said here, as he made it very clear that he did not come to do away with the law. He, in fact, came to fulfill it. He came to be the example of his obedience. No one had kept it, not perfectly, not without sin, not without stumbling and human fault. But Jesus Christ came, and he kept God's laws. And so in doing so, he gave us an example, and he fulfilled them. And so he tells us, this verse 17, Think not... Or do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He came really to set us an example, to, and at times, explain to us what was important within his law. In saying this, he said it actually to a group of people who lived in an environment and a society where there were a group of Jews that felt they were keeping God's law. In fact, they went overboard at times. Not only teach God's commandments, but traditions that they had established, what they thought were acts and, and uh, of righteousness. And Christ said, as he continued in verse 19, he said, Who for, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, for I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, after this, he went on to magnify the law. But it's, it's an interesting statement because at that time, the actions and conduct of the scribes and Pharisees, they were looked upon as the men who were righteous, who were right before God, who were close to God. And Christ said, we have to exceed that. And he didn't define them as righteous. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, he said just the opposite. In Matthew chapter 23, Christ literally rebuked the Pharisees. And he talked about their hypocrisy. He went so far as to say, in verse 13, he says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. They became a barrier. They were an obstacle for people who would read and study. And that's true today. There are people who begin to read the Bible and they seek understanding. Many times they go to, and often, the the faith that they grew up in. And when they begin to ask questions, sometimes nothing makes sense to them. But if they accept what they're taught, then they begin to accept things that have twisted God's word. In fact, one of the common things that is accepted is that once you've accepted Christ, you're saved. So they shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. And so he repeatedly, in fact, at one point he literally said here as we read it, verse 15, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Actually, sometimes because of the young convert's zeal, you say, how does that come about? Well, because of their zeal, because of their first love of something they've embraced. They become, as Christ described, twice as much a son of hell. That's an incredible condemnation to a people who thought they were righteous. But you know what he also gave them? That's what I, why I came to this passage, this chapter. He actually gave them instruction, brethren, to how to change. And he told them specifically where to start. Notice in Matthew chapter 23, verse 26. It says, blind Pharisees. First cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. Now he was speaking about how they cleanse the outside of the cup, but the inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. It's very clear he was talking about their conduct and how they conducted themselves. And what he told them is, where do you start? Well, in the human body, what he's described is what we call the core. The heart and the major muscles. 
And so it is in that place that we're to start. Now, the core of our faith, the the foundation of it, is actually to obey God. It's the first four commandments, our relationship with God. Jesus expressed it, and I'll, I'll turn to the passages. I trust you're familiar with them. Christ said in Matthew chapter 6, Put you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In the book of Luke, Christ said, If anyone comes to me, and does not love, I'll use the proper translation or the way it should be expressed, does not love less, father, mother, brother, sister, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Mr. Meredith taught us very clearly that what's really at the core of our relationship with God in baptism is that we totally submit to God. And I know in counseling, and I've counseled many people for baptism. I read through Luke chapter 14, Matthew chapter 6. Read through the words of Christ that gives us instruction, where we literally accept death. We're willing to die to have a relationship with our Lord and Savior. That is the expression of baptism. At one occasion in my life when I was Counseling a woman. I was quite young at that time. I was in Arizona. And she was French. And as I counseled her, uh, she was very, very, uh, not only of a repentant heart, she had a certain kind of emotion in her life. It was a part of her life in all things, but it particularly was a part of her faith and expression of it. And And so I was trying to explain to her the symbolism of baptism, that we were buried in the water. And at that point in time, I had no idea whether she actually could swim or if she was afraid of the water. But I explained it, and I said, even if I were to take, because I wanted her to understand the contract and the covenant, the seriousness of it. So even if I were to take and hold you as we put you under the water, if I were to hold you there three, four, five minutes, that you would do it. Not to give your life, but to to give your life to God. And so I kind of forgot about it because I went on to explain other things, but I wanted her to see and understand the commitment, the submission, the fact that we're giving our life to God. And so we went forward. And I felt she was ready. She also felt the same. She told me she wanted to be baptized. So we made arrangements. And at that time, uh, we were using a, a large water trough that is often used to water cattle. It's a big galvanized steel, six foot long and several feet deep. And we filled it up with water, and we're getting ready to baptize her. And I, I remember her name. This was many years ago, but I, I will not use it. I'm going to use Jones. I said, Mrs. Jones, I said, when I baptize you, and I explained it, and and so on, and told her what I needed to do. And at that time in my life, I actually did not review the ceremony before baptism. I do that today, but at that time I did not. And so, and we were outside, and there was not any traffic or anything that would hinder her hearing. And so I asked her, before we do so, do you have any last-minute questions? Because I was thinking more of the physical instruction 
and the situation of helping her into the tank and so on. And she said, well, Mr. Greer, how long will you hold me under the water? And, of course, I, I immediately connected it to what I had previously said. And I realized that here I was going to baptize her, and, and she was doing exactly what I had said, and that is you should be willing. Well, I certainly had no intention to hold her more than just a, a very brief point, but it did cause me to start to laugh. And, of course, it also made me realize how this woman came without knowing. But she was there. And, of course, I baptized her. Later, not too long after that, my wife and I moved to another church area uh, to serve them. But I always remember the situation in the moment. Because that's really what it's about, is we submit ourselves to God. We literally go to the very core, to the heart. Brethren, when we do that, it gives us strength. It provides for us a foundation. Now, how do we proceed from there? Well, it's actually laid out in the Bible. Notice in 2 Peter chapter 1, because God gives us direction as we go forward. We certainly know, for instance, that we, as we receive God's Holy Spirit, we're to use that Spirit to put on the fruits of the Spirit. But even then, is there is there sort of a progression of, of how that takes place? Yes, there is. It's described in the Bible. In 2 Peter chapter 1, it's like, in a sense, anyone who's guiding you and leading you, like a trainer or in athletics or perhaps someone teaching you in your work or preparing you through education. You lay a foundation, then you begin to build on it. You put the, the pieces in place and you, in a sense, you go forward. Well, the Bible does. It gives us a foundation. We start from the inside, our commitment to God, our heart. In Second Peter chapter 1, we find where Peter writes, in verse 3, he says, verse, uh, chapter 1 of Second Peter, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, but which has been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith. And where do we start? We start with our faith, our trust in God, our assurance of his intervention in our life. The assurance that comes from reading his word. We start at the core. And so what do we add to it? We add virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. You might think, well, these self-control is needed for these things. No, God's going forward because as we go forward in our life, we begin to see weaknesses and faults. God begins to open our understanding. And we have to deal with them. And some of them take a great deal of self-control to, to make not only a decision, but then to go forward. Perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. 
It's also interesting, if you think of these, as we add these things, they lead to, and I don't think it's, in a sense, sort of the end destination, because I think love, because God is love, starts with us, but rather they lead to the perfection, the growth of, the building of that love. And I think each of these qualities are something we add to, and they add on. If you actually try to physically strengthen your core, you can target it, but you'll also at the same time be strengthening certain other parts of your body, whether your arms, legs. But you target the core, and then you build, and then, and then as you build that core, depending on the activity, you try to build and prepare for, especially if you're in, in sports and you want to uh, let's say you're uh, playing a specific sport. Are there things that you build in a certain way uh, so that you can function most effectively in that particular endeavor? Well, our endeavor is to become God's children, is to be his family, is to I- imitate our Lord and Savior, is to take on the very character and the identification of the family that we want to be a part of. That's the family of God. God's revealed that to us. Our The holy days actually very much are part of that revelation. And so when we read in the scripture, we're putting leavening out or we're purging out the old man, God gives us direction. He gives us a way to start and things we should pray about and where we should proceed. Now in reading this, it goes on to say, for if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness. Well, that's, again, what we are given. We're given the light. We should not be short-sighted, brethren. We should understand what lies ahead of us. And has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure that if you do these things, you will never stumble, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's described a path. God has set up walls, and we are to go forward. A progression is laid out. To us, our growth is in growing in Christ. It's growing in His image and His character. Growth, as I mentioned before, is going forward. It's not only turning around; it's going forward from that position. We see something in our life. We ask God's forgiveness. We try strive then to turn around. And as we do that and we go forward, then we begin to exercise or to use the knowledge that God's given to us. And the Bible shows us that's important in many passages. I'm not going to read all that are available, but I'd like to show you some because that what I'm saying here I want you to understand because if we don't understand it when we go through trials or we go through a difficulty in life, it can be really discouraging. If you don't know that what you're striving for and how you're to go about it and, and what the process is, it can be very discouraging. 
It's interesting in our society today that we've learned uh, uh, at one time it was that we set a goal and we have a goal. And certainly that remains correct because even the principle I'm going to speak of has that firmly in mind. You have a goal. But we've also learned sometimes that the, the path from here to that goal or the accomplishment is, is sometimes very difficult to see, especially when you start at a very basic starting point. You know, every world champ started as an amateur. And so what we've learned is what we call a process. We've learned that there's a particular process of doing and, and so instead of focusing its way out in something we wish to achieve, we focus on the process that will lead us there. And when we focus on that process and we embrace it and we become comfortable, we continue doing it and working hard at it, we are advancing. In fact, that's the entire purpose of, quote, the process whether it be a a football team, baseball team, basketball, or even an individual sport, golf, tennis, whatever it may be, running, we understand that this process we're going through is going to help us. In fact, it's the only path in many cases in terms of the human experience to achieve our goal. And sometimes rather than we're in the same position, we, God's made a promise to us. He wants us to keep the goal in mind, but he also reveals to us a process. In fact, when we look at forgiveness through Jesus Christ, our Passover, and we look at the days of unleavened bread, of going forward, of purging out the eleven, God's actually defining a process. In Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews 5, verse 12, so Paul writes here to the Hebrew people, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. It doesn't say they were not God's people or his servants. It appears is that they had not moved forward as God had perhaps desired of them, not that they did not have that opportunity. It remained in front of them. I don't think any of us make perfect progress. Sometimes life and even conversion is like two steps forward and three steps back or three steps forward and one back. And there's times we go through difficulty or trials, and the Bible describes that. The guide describes fiery trials. But what did they do? They're really a part of the process. They're part of the reality. Just like if you train hard, you're going to have soreness. And it, and so you pace yourself. And when you do have a time of soreness or injury, you don't quit. You heal. And we'll see that as we go forward, even spiritually. So he says to them that where they are and where they need to be was not on the same page. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age, 
that is, those who by reason of use, or if they've been using their the word of God, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Notice they've embraced a process. They've embraced the use of the things. And in that, as they go forward, I think sometimes even without really realizing how much is taking place, we grow. But we grow in doing what's right. We grow in obedience to God. We grow in trying to strive for the things that reflect the spirit and character of God. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews 12, and this is where God talks about the love that he has for us as a father. And it says in verse 6, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. You know, the Bible gives us a picture of discipline that is an expression of love. We live in a world, brethren, where discipline has been only become a picture of hatred or anger. You know, we won't allow today many times parents to guide and correct their children. And I understand without God's guidance and without a deep love and, and, and frankly, at times even an understanding of the role of a parent and how to accomplish the things you seek, that parents without guidance often The human reaction and frustration is anger. The human reaction when we are frustrated or we're not progressing as we want is often to lash out. And so I understand what's going on in the world. I certainly hope in the church of God and among God's people and among those who are parents in his church, we have a different perspective. We don't allow the world to taint what the Bible teaches us. And that is discipline with love and with teaching and with the times, there are times of forgiveness and times of mercy. What that does is it prepares our children to actually discipline themselves. It prepares our children to understand the ups and downs and trials of life, that sometimes if we make mistakes or consequences, and we don't want that to happen, that understanding to come when the consequences are serious, that could end in perhaps prison or uh, accident, that could disfigure or hurt them for the rest of their life. We, we're trying to give them direction and guidance. We're trying to set out a path. And that's what God says he does. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son, son whom he receives. It says, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? God goes on to show that because he can see things even brethren that a human father cannot see, that his chastening is appropriate in every situation. Sometimes as a father, we don't see everything. We may chasten or discipline and and later after the fact realize that what we did was not necessarily what should have been done in that situation. Maybe it wasn't right. Maybe it wasn't even just. Maybe one child set up another and we... You know, as you might say, uh, like a fish, we swallowed it, hook, line, and sinker. And hopefully if we've done that, we've become wise, and we don't do it again. But if you're a parent, you have several children, there's probably some point in time when you did. I know I certainly did, and I also know my brother and I, when we were younger and we were under our fathers, 
his household and his discipline. There were times that we did that, trying to one point the finger at the other and and have them become the, quote, guilty party, when in fact they were innocent. That's human nature. And it certainly was our nature, our carnal nature. But how do we respond? Well, verse 11, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Notice that, the fruit of righteousness, where we started in the book of Romans. Grace, why? Forgiveness, why? For righteousness that leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. A process that it ends in a goal. And that goal is what we seek, eternal life. That's God's promise. His promise is eternal life. says, the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Going through a trial or correction, it's, it's not easy if it's really severe. We end up with feeble knees and we end up kind of discouraged. Our hands hang down. But God doesn't want us to remain there. He wants us, as it says, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. That we begin to walk forward, and we do so in a manner that leads to progress. And we do so correcting, not limping, but actually correcting so that we will heal. We also read... And I'll not turn to it in the book of James, in James chapter 1, in verses 23 to 25, that we need to be doers of God's law. We see certain things, brethren, of ourselves, and I believe God reveals those things to us as we go forward, that we need to be doers. And it's in the doing or the going forward. It's in the meaning of the days of leaven bread, the journey that we are on. Not standing still, but moving forward, obeying God, going forward within the walls that have defined where God wants us to proceed to. Within the framework that he has given us of his Sabbath and his holy days, of the clean and unclean. Some of those are physical practices, brethren, but they give us spiritual understanding. We go forward. So the days of unleavened bread provide the understanding of a relationship, the understanding of grace, of forgiveness, of God's mercy. But with that, there comes also responsibility or the intervention that God provided to go forward. And, of course, that intervention in our life in many ways gives us a tool of, the gift of, the Holy Spirit. We enter into a covenant with God. So our obedience gives us an understanding of picture the world does not possess. And the more we obey God and keep his days and we seek to do so, they humble us. You know, that process is a process that in reality, human vanity and being puffed up really has no part, nor is it the product of doing that when you seek to do it according to God's instruction. In fact, the 
product is a humble spirit, a contrite heart. The product is meekness. The product is because we see our own frailty and our own weakness is to be patient and merciful and long-suffering with others. If you're being puffed up in some way or you begin to be judgmental or self-righteous, brethren, there's something wrong in your process or something that you need to look at and see. To me, generally, I would tell you what you're not seeing is your own need for forgiveness and mercy. And when you see that, it helps you. You grow. So God's combined the things that our world has sought to separate, that the world has not understood. God has combined them together. Passover, we're forgiven. The days of unleavened bread, God tells us to do. And through Christ, we are unleavened. But he also tells you, you take out. You have a physical part. You remove it. You're, you have lessons to learn. And then we read what happened when God did this and what he did. His hand, he intervened again so that they could go forward. He provided for them not only a path, but he provided with that path out of darkness light. And that's what we're to embrace. It's interesting in Revelation chapter 12, it's the very end time. We're not talking about things of the past. We're talking of not only, brethren, lessons we learn from the past, but we're talking about life in the present, life in the days as we go forward, both observing the day of leavened bread and going forward from them as we go forward through this coming spiritual year and obeying God's annual holy days and his Sabbaths. Sometimes I think we, we think of the holy days and not realize that when we read Leviticus chapter 23 and God defines his holy days and feast, he starts with his Sabbath. <laughs> so we have weekly Sabbath. Every one of those is a part of that progression, a part of that process, a part of the lessons we're learning, and they all tie together. But at the very end of this age, the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 12, in verse 10, it says, Now I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, excuse me, then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren accuses them before our God day and night has been cast down. God's not seeking to bring accusation against us. He wants our growth. He wants us to proceed from his mercy and his grace and righteousness. It's Satan who's continually pointing a finger, making accusations. I don't think, honestly, before God that he does so in lies and deceit. I think, frankly, for most of us in our human weaknesses and our frailties, he quickly points out whatever, whenever we slip, whenever we fall, I think that is, you know, perhaps what's happening. But I want to point out to you chapter 12, verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. That's also the error of those who look to 
reject the process that God reveals to us, to reject the concept that we should keep the laws, is that if we do, then we're rejecting the sacrifice of Christ. The reality is, brethren, when you strive to obey God, you come to have a greater appreciation. And you know you need, you absolutely need the mercy and the forgiveness and the love of God. And so, obedience does not reject. Obedience embraces. So as they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. So I hope as you observe these days, you have a little better understanding of part of what God intends, that we in fact do purge out the old leaven, and brethren, that we grab hold of the principle of truth and sincerity, that we realize it's from the core. It starts from the very core muscles. That's what strengthens us and is what gives us, as we go forward, the ability to reach our, you might say, the things that we can do and we can achieve through God's Holy Spirit working in us. So we're on a path, and I hope that you see its walls, and I hope, brethren, you see that as we go forward, that path is one that is open to us by God's calling, that he has brought us out, he has called us to go forward.